And so we see this instability and unpredictability for workers before the pandemic. Does that change at a time when service sector workers are really held up as these frontline heroes? As it appears labor market conditions are tightening and wages are going up, do we see the market sort of forcing more work schedule stability? No. Starting in March of 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic sent shockwaves through the American labor market. Millions of Americans lost or left their jobs, and employers are having a harder time than ever recruiting workers. From government leaders to economists and academics to business leaders and employees, everyone is asking the same questions. Where is our workforce? How has the pandemic impacted them? And what does it mean for the future of work? I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Over the next few weeks, we're digging into these questions with a three-part series on our changing workforce. In our last episode, we spoke with U.S. Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, about the role of government in preparing our workers for this new normal. This week, we're joined by Harvard professor Dan Schneider, co-director of the SHIFT Project, which has the largest source of data on service sector workers in the United States. In this episode, we talk about how the pandemic and the government aid that came with it altered ideas about work. Good morning, Dan. It's nice to see you today. Hey, good morning, Jill. Thanks so much for uh, making time to talk with me. Yeah, I appreciate it very much. We're talking about employees and work post-pandemic and what the pandemic did to the workplace and to job opportunities. And I'm so excited to talk with you and um, for our listeners to hear more about how you see the world through the work that you do. Can you talk a little bit about your work and your research? Yeah, absolutely. My work focuses on the frontline service sector workers, folks in food service at fast food restaurants and casual dining places, at big box stores like Walmart and Target, at you know pharmacies and grocery stores who really have been on the, the front lines of the pandemic but have long really struggled with, with bad jobs, frankly. And we try to understand those working conditions and, and how they matter for workers and for their families. And so what types of jobs do most of the folks that you work with have? And and can you talk a little bit about the income level of those jobs as well? Yeah, absolutely. Our work is focused on people who are really, you know, regulars in, in almost everyone's everyday life. These are the folks who are, you know, the baristas make, making coffee, folks keeping, you know, the grocery stores stocked uh, where they can these days. These are servers in restaurants, cashiers and checkout clerks, delivery drivers, and pharmacy clerks. These are the folks who really are the, the backbone of the service sector economy. These are also folks who, as we all know, really struggle with you know, very low wages in many parts of this economy. In our data, the, the median wage before the pandemic was about $12 an hour. And with that added up to for workers that we've been surveying, you know, our household incomes where about two-thirds of the folks in our data are in households that are making less than $50,000 a year. So that's an extraordinarily low wage and low income, especially in places like Boston or, or other major cities. And, and where do most of these folks reside? Yeah, I mean, the, the folks in our sample are really a cross-section of the country. And just as, you know, in many ways, you know, there are industries in the country that are really geographically focused, right? We think of, of tech in the Bay Area or of, of biotech and education here in the Boston area or of, of manufacturing, you know, in, 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 the, in, in the middle of the country and in some southern parts of the country. But that, that's not true, right, for service sector work, for food service, for, for grocery stores. Everybody needs to go grocery shopping. Everybody needs a pharmacy. These folks are all around the country. These are jobs that, 
you know, can't be outsourced. These are jobs that are in-person jobs and that you find in every community in the United States. Right. So it's interesting, right? And a lot of the companies that employ the folks that you talk with, those are companies that kind of work at a macro level across the United States. And so is it that, you know, they're set, are they setting pay scales kind of universally? And in some cases it works better, in some cases it doesn't work as well based on where people are located? Uh, it's such a good question. Um, it's actually something on our on our research agenda with this data. What, what's really neat about the data we collect and, and these surveys that we've collected from about 150,000 hourly workers now across the country and at, at large firms in the service sector is that we know where they are in the country pretty specifically and, and we know what firm they work at and we know how much they make an hour. And an interesting question, that one you raise that, that economists are really interested in these days is, you know, to what extent are wages being set to reflect local labor market conditions and costs of living? And to what extent are they just national wage standards that really cut across places? To what extent are local minimum wage standards raising wages just in those places for firms that are covered? And to what extent are they setting a floor more generally across the country because companies may have uniform wage levels? I don't have the answer for you right now. It's something we're looking at. But I'll give you one interesting example that we're seeing in our data is that more and more some of these large firms are, are sort of stating that they'll have mandatory minimum wages, voluntary minimum wages. And so Target is one example of this, who has said that they will have a, a minimum of a $15 an hour wage. And what we see in our data is very clear evidence that uh, we see wages you know, really come to that $15 minimum for the Target respondents we interview. And that's across the board. Right, that $15 minimum is you see that everywhere. But you also see that it's not that folks in Boston are getting paid a lot more than $15. Or folks in New York City or San Francisco who work at Target, they're also getting paid about $15. And so that's an example of that kind of cross-cutting wage that can make it even harder to get by in a service sector job in high-cost places like here in Boston um, or in other major cities around the country. So I can imagine this has got to be one place, this industry has got to be one industry where people's perception of their jobs and their roles in those jobs changed dramatically during the pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about how people reported their work, whether or not they liked it, what what they were doing, what the conditions were like pre and post pandemic, what, what wages were like, all, all of those things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the pandemic... You know, exposed some in some sense for for consumers and for the country at large the important role that service sector workers were playing, and I think it also you know really highlighted for service sector workers they felt this newfound visibility, and I think what all that did was to really surface some of the difficult labor conditions, honestly, that service sector workers have long been struggling with, that in some sense became even more acute during COVID, and so we've been talking about wages, but. Part of what we found with the Shift Project is that wages are not the whole story on job quality. We sometimes use it as a sort of shortcut for a good job and a bad job. There's a lot more going on there. And, and one of those things that we've really focused on is work time, work schedules. And what we see for many service sector workers are work schedules that are unstable and unpredictable, that can vary from day to day and week to week, often with little advance notice. And what we found before the pandemic is that large shares of workers report that they have variable work schedules and that workers get little advance notice of what they're going to be. Before the pandemic, about two-thirds of workers were getting less than two weeks' notice of their work schedule. About a third were getting less than a week's notice. 
And then we also see that even when that schedule is published, it can change at the last minute. Two-thirds of workers tell us that there were last-minute timing changes to their schedule made by their managers. Other workers report you know, canceled shifts or having to work on call. And so we see this instability and unpredictability for workers before the pandemic. Does that change at a time when service sector workers are really held up as these frontline heroes? As it appears, labor market conditions are tightening and wages are going up. Do we see the market sort of forcing more work schedule stability? No. We've just put out a report where we took a close look to see if these scheduling conditions have changed for service sector workers over the, you know, from before through the pandemic. And we really see very little change in work schedules over this period of time, despite you know, seemingly changing economic circumstances and, and seemingly changing sort of like appreciation for service sector workers. Is the reason companies aren't shifting, have they not noticed, do they not know that that's an, a very important factor in their employees' lives? Or is it just too much friction to try to shift the way you do that and, and they just need to operate at business as usual? What, what are you hearing from companies in terms of making that shift? Yeah, no, it, it, it's a great question. And let, me, and let me lift up, you know, sort of what you said about orienting why we would care about work schedules. You know, living with an unstable and unpredictable work schedule is really difficult for workers. In our work, we've shown that workers who have more schedule instability and unpredictability are more stressed out. They report more psychological distress. They sleep less well at night. It's, it's really hard to go through life in an on-call sort of alert state, not knowing when and how much you'll work and having very little control over that. It also makes it really difficult to manage work and care obligations. It increases work-life conflict among parents. It leads to more unstable and unpredictable childcare arrangements as a result of unstable and unpredictable work arrangements. So there's a good case for why this matters for workers. But I think what's striking here is you're right, there's also a case why it might matter for firms and for the bottom line. And one piece of this is that it, it makes workers very unhappy. Workers who have more unstable and unpredictable schedules are much less satisfied with their jobs, and they're more likely to report that they plan to leave their jobs. In some recent work, we've followed workers over time, and we compare those workers with more stable and predictable schedules and more unstable schedules, and we see that they are indeed more likely to leave. Turnover is higher when schedule instability is, is, is higher. It might be that less turnover is good for firms' bottom line, that having happier workers in an age when brick-and-mortar stores really you know, want to have a good customer experience in person is, is really important for the bottom line. And there's a, a wonderful experiment that the uh, social work scholar Susan Lambert and the legal scholar Joan Williams did a few years ago working with The Gap, where they did an intervention to provide more schedule stability and predictability in some stores and then compared that to what happened in other stores that were business as usual. And what they find is that workers slept better at night, but same-store sales also went up. And what they attribute that to is that longer-tenured, more productive associates stayed on the job. And that was good for business. So I think there is a business case here, as well as kind of a, a people case, right? That, that workers shouldn't be subject to such conditions. So why hasn't more changed? I think one possibility is what you suggest, is that you know, upper-level management may not really realize the scope of what this means for workers. There's a lot of just-in-time management in general in the service sector, right, with just-in-time inventory management. And that kind of thinking is pervasive. But I think we, realize, we, we may sometimes forget that people aren't like inventory. 
Right. Uh, and there are real consequences to managing people with a just-in-time mentality that aren't the same for managing apparel or grocery items. So that's one possibility. And there, I think there is a real role for sort of research and public education of the general public, but also of, of, of executives to understand the, the scope of these challenges. But I think another piece of this is that these practices are really just baked in to how business is done these days. And it's a hard thing to change. It's, it's really how scheduling and human resource management gets done at many of these large firms. It's how software and technology is set up. It's how managers are trained. And, it, and it's hard to unwind that. Some firms are beginning to try to change these practices through a sort of self-scheduling paradigm. To sort of, in some sense, if technology enabled this just-in-time scheduling, maybe even better technology can help fix some of those problems. And so what we see is the deployment of, of apps and other tools that let workers go in and pick the shifts they want. And then if things change in their life, gives workers the flexibility, not just managers the flexibility, but workers the flexibility to swap shifts or change shifts with their coworkers. And, and I think that those are really promising possibilities if they're widely adopted and effectively implemented. You know, I'm curious about the impact. You talked a little bit about the impact on worker health, their mental health, and probably their physical health as well. And have things changed pre-pandemic and post-pandemic? Um. You know, I think what we see in the data is that work schedules continue to be a really important stressor on families and workers, but that a lot of other things have changed about retail work that in a way make it even more challenging. And things have changed also outside of the workplace for workers that make it more challenging. So in the workplace, you know, uh, retail and food service work is in some sense uh, are, are, are people management jobs where you're interacting with a general public and you know doing customer uh, customer work, customer facing work. And I think that has become much more difficult in the pandemic. We 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 see that very clearly in our surveys where these are folks you know low paid, often with unstable schedules, who are really being asked to play the role of the sort of public health infrastructure asking people to put on masks, dealing with social distancing in the workplace. And, and it's a lot to ask of frontline workers. And it's been really stressful for workers. So I think we see that stress. It's also just that I think the general public, all of us, are, are all feeling stress from the pandemic. And, and that really spills over into these interactions where workers find themselves with an increasingly sort of fractious and divided and sort of uh, angry public who is coming through large retail and food service establishments. And of course, these workers are also dealing with a kind of everyday existential risk from COVID. These are folks who have to work in person. They're not like professionals who can carry on working from, from home, have relatively little trouble in social distancing and staying home when sick. For retail workers, it's a really different story. Those are just not possible within the confines of most jobs. At the same time, uh, these are workers who don't have any financial margin of error. So even as professionals like me go chasing around after rapid tests wherever I can find them and can uh, afford to take time off when I'm sick, that's, that's really not the reality that hourly workers in the service sector face. And so some of the protections that many people who are already protected rely on are much less accessible to these folks who are taking on a lot more risk. Yeah, that's interesting. Switching gears just a little bit, but still kind of along the same lines. During the pandemic, we saw the federal government pass several significant pandemic-related aid initiatives, including PEBT, stimulus checks, and big increases in unemployment insurance. What did this mean in the moment as those things were happening? And did it lift up 
any part of this population or did it save any part of this population? What was the effect? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I do think it's important to try to step back from recent history and recognize just how historic all of this support was in the United States context, that stimulus checks of the magnitude they were, that the augmented UI and expanded UI, and the child tax credit, unconditional cash in an almost universal fashion to families with children. These are, these are really historic changes, if temporary, to the social safety net in the United States. I mean, the child tax credit is something that folks who think about child allowances and, and, and cash supports have been working on for decades. And, and here we saw it implemented, if only for a moment, it appears. So there's a historic nature of this. You know, what effects has it had? When we think about unemployment insurance, I, I think it's, it's hard to overstate just how important it was in those early months of the COVID pandemic as the economy just radically shut down and shut down in this really unequal way, where those in the service sector and hospitality and leisure who earn the least and have the least saved up were the ones who lost their jobs. Uh, we took a close look at how UI mattered for these service sector workers. And, and I think the story you know, is pretty consistent, if, if not entirely rosy. And what we saw there was that workers who were unemployed because their store had closed or their restaurant shut down and who successfully navigated the UI system and got UI were no worse off than the workers who kept working, who weren't laid off, whose stores stayed open. And that's a pretty dramatic narrowing. They weren't just not any worse off economically. They weren't really any worse off when it came to psychological distress or bad sleep. This money was really a lifeline. But what we also found is that lots of workers who seemed eligible for UI didn't get it in time. And by in time, we mean right away, within a month or two of losing your job, because that's more than the margin of error that many service sector workers have for making ends meet when they're not getting a paycheck. And these workers were much less well-off than those who were working or those who actually got UI. They experienced much more you know, hardship, were more likely to say they had gone hungry because they couldn't afford enough to eat, or more likely to say they hadn't been able to keep up with their utility bills, or more likely to say that they couldn't cope with any kind of expense shock or had difficulty making ends meet. And they were much, their health was impacted. They were much more psychologically distressed. They slept less well at night. They said their overall health had deteriorated. And so there we see just how important UI was, but also the, the importance of administrative design. It didn't effectively reach as quickly as it needed to all those workers who so badly needed this support. Um, so it was a lifeline for many. And I think when we turn to the child tax credit, there's been some you know, recent research that suggests it's played an important role for many low-income families in helping them put food on the table, that it will sort of reduce child poverty at least temporarily in an important way. So I think there are real you know, successes to some of these programs. But I think what we haven't seen in tandem with these changes that support those who are out of work or support those with young children are the supports that people who are working really need to make work tenable. And I think those supports come down to things like paid family and medical leave and effective access to paid sick leave, and that these are the, the kind of work supports that many employers, unfortunately, don't voluntarily provide, but that can be a much broader public good that can help all workers and also enhance public health. And we really haven't seen much movement there. Are there folks who were employed in the services industry? You said some of them are leaving and looking for 
better jobs, better paying jobs, more stable jobs. Are you seeing others just drop out of the workforce completely for particular reasons? No, it's a great question. I mean, we have seen unemployment return, essentially, to almost pre-pandemic lows, but we still know that there are some workers who are missing from the labor force. Um, and And so what's going on there? Where are these folks? Among those who have quit their jobs, a large share tell us they're looking for a new job. And I think that's those are the folks who are sort of engaged in this upgrading that may be possible in this moment for many workers, either within the service sector or to, to leave the service sector. There's another share of folks who, who say that they aren't actively looking for work, although it's a pretty small group in our data set at least. And here I think what we see, part of what's going on, is that there are some older folks who have retired and who tell us they didn't plan to retire when they, during COVID when they did. And part of that is about, you know, just not being willing to put up with the real risk that working on the job, particularly as a somewhat older person, faced. We also find that there are folks who tell us that they uh, have caregiving obligations that make it impossible for them to be working right now. And then there's a group of folks who say that they're not working right now because they don't feel safe working during COVID. And I think that that does speak to the kind of, you know, really focused risk that these in-person service sector workers face even now in an ongoing way. Has the availability of the vaccine tipped the scales at all in terms of folks feeling like it's safe to go back to work? And how have vaccine mandates kind of gone across in in the sector? Yeah. Now, I appreciate the question, particularly the way you phrase it, because I think when we talk about vaccine mandates, or not when we talk about it, but in general, the discussion of vaccine mandates is often focused on how on the possibility that a vaccine mandate will drive some vaccine-resistant workers out of work, right? right? And that there's this risk during a tight labor market that, that we can't afford to, to discourage anyone from, from working right now. And a vaccine may actually discourage, a mandate may discourage some people from working. But I, I do think that loses sight of the other side of this, which is that in our data, we find that, that over two-thirds of service sector workers are vaccinated, and for these workers, the longer they go on working with coworkers who are unvaccinated, who may not be taking these COVID-19 mitigation policies seriously, the more at risk they may feel. Even though we know that own vaccination and own masking are robust defenses to COVID, I think we also recognize that in a workplace, it's really nice to know that all your coworkers are vaccinated and all your coworkers are doing a good job of masking. Certainly, when I go teach in person at Harvard, that's a real you know, peace of mind to me to know that everyone around me is required to be uh, uh, not just vaccinated now, but boosted and masked and regularly tested. This is an extraordinary level of protection. And so that we will not see widespread vaccine mandates, given the recent court decisions, I think can give us you know, some pause about whether there's a group of of workers who have been doing their part to adhere to these COVID-19 mitigation practices that may decide that the risk calculus isn't worth it to stay on the job, as opposed to those workers who are resistant to these mitigation efforts, deciding that if you made them do that, then they were going to leave the job. And I'll tell you that the, the, the first group, those who, who do their part, is the larger you know, part of that labor force from our data. What do you think is most top of mind for employers? Because the, this employee base is that is how they produce revenue. Has the pandemic sparked new conversations about how to take care of employees or what employees need? Do you think that we'll over time see shifts in how companies are run in this industry? It's a great question. And I, and I think that's the, the moment of possibility is that this has really sparked some reckoning, both in the public mind, perhaps in public policy, but perhaps, you know, most most directly in corporate policy, that companies may, you know, 
see that things need to change, both because of the extreme conditions that workers faced and now of the difficult you know, labor market conditions that many employers face. And so perhaps this is a moment when employers might you know, voluntarily offer paid sick leave, even though it's not mandated, or may make moves to embrace more stable and predictable schedules. Some employers are doing things like that. So in our data, we saw that after a public campaign, Olive Garden introduced paid sick leave for its workers, and that seems to be durable during the pandemic. Um, we're working with IKEA right now, which is an employer that already provides a lot of schedule stability and predictability, even before the pandemic, uh, to implement uh, uh, some tests around giving workers more schedule control and flexibility. So I think we do see examples of companies that are voluntarily making these changes. But by and large, you know, we don't. And by and large, things haven't changed much, and I'm not sure that they're about to change now, two years on into the pandemic, it's not clear what the what, what will make the next six months you know really different from the last six months when it comes to you know voluntary action by employers. I think instead, what we may be seeing are our employers really trying to wait it out and and expect a return to things as normal. And in a sense, what you have seen from some employers are temporary measures. So rather than durable wage increases that can be hard to take back, bonuses at the time of hiring. Rather than broad paid sick leave that really works, specific provisions for minimal paid sick leave if you test positive for COVID. These are temporary measures that don't get baked into the business model. And then, you know, the other thing that's kind of sticking with me is, is how you talked about there are lots of employees right now employed by the services industry who are looking for new slash better jobs. And Secretary Walsh talked a little bit about the Good Jobs Initiative. A big part of that, he said, was training to elevate opportunities for individuals. Do folks who are working in the services industry have time to also go through training so that they can, you know, elevate the work that they're doing? You know, these are the two tracks to trying to help workers get into jobs that work for them and their families. One is to train individuals to help them move up occupationally. And another is to try to improve the jobs that many workers are already in and that some large share of American workers will always be in, at least for the foreseeable future. There are always going to be folks working in grocery stores and big box stores and cafes. And so, you know, these are the two levers in some sense to try to improve working conditions. If we focus on that first track, can we effectively you know, move folks who are in quite precarious jobs through training into better jobs. And I think you're exactly right that the current working conditions pose a hurdle to that being effectively done. Now, when we look in our data and look at folks who are currently enrolled in school, now that, that's probably a little bit different from job training programs. That may be folks who are college students, um, community college students. And one thing they, they say very clearly in the data is that their current work schedules get in the way of them doing that schooling effectively. That the schedule instability and unpredictability they experience makes it hard to study, makes it hard to get to classes. And so that's a real way in which these jobs are not a rung on the ladder of upward mobility, but are rather themselves a kind of obstacle to upward mobility. They they are not paths, but traps, I think, for many workers. And along those lines, do you think that innovation and technology and automation will start to replace more and more of those jobs and give us opportunity to train people for higher level jobs. I mean, it's just so interesting to me that there's a dearth of 
computer scientists and technology related opportunities by like 10x right now and and that and that our our world and our country only becomes more technology enhanced over time and that there are so many smart people out there who just haven't had the opportunities to train for jobs that are higher paying and um, provide more opportunity for themselves and their families How, what's the role of automation in all of this and you know, over what pace and time? Or do you think it's just going to be slow going and the evolution will happen very slowly? Yes, to, to all that, I think, is the answer. We have begun to track the entry of automation and, and of surveillance technology into these retail and food service workplaces by asking workers what they're experiencing on the job. And, and some of this kind of automation we obviously all see every day. It's in self-checkout, right, and the ability to order groceries online and have them delivered. So some of those things have are here. They seem to have become more common during the pandemic. And I think at least for things like grocery delivery and you know online ordering with in-person pickup, lots of consumers have just become much more comfortable using these tools, sort of forced to use these tools and now embrace these tools during the pandemic. So I think that is sort of some of the argument for a more rapid pace of change. But we also know from our you know very careful labor economist colleagues that in general, these changes happen pretty slowly over time. And it's not an all at once, an elimination of a vast number of jobs, that jobs change slowly. And when they change, it may be more to the specific tasks that workers do than to a wholesale loss of a class of worker, and that other jobs fill in. And, and on those processes, I think there are some really interesting examples of workers and firms and unions trying to get ahead of things a little bit. So one such case we saw a couple of years ago uh, among Marriott workers uh, who were on strike in, in the Bay Area. And one of the things that they bargained for successfully was sort of more of a seat at the table and a little more say into how technology and automation was going to be introduced into hotels. It, this was, these weren't Luddites. They weren't saying no technology ever. Rather, they were saying we need to be a part of this conversation there is not technological inevitableism. We as a society can make decisions around what technology will be good for us as a whole and what technology may be toxic to society as a whole. And so what those workers negotiated around was the ability to get some training because somebody's going to need to service the self-check-in kiosks and the robot vacuum cleaners. And why not us? And so I think that's a, a nice example where workers can be involved collaboratively. You know, I mean, to the inevitability argument, I think we have a really recent and important cautionary tale, in a sense, in, in, the global, in the globalization that we saw over the past several decades. My colleague Gordon Hansen with um, David Otter and colleagues have done really important work on how the China trade shock, while in some sense economically efficient broadly, right, lower prices for consumers, um, had such concentrated, such negative effects that were not effectively offset for one group of workers that it was just that the concentration of those costs was devastating not just to them, but perhaps to our wider society. And I think that's a really important cautionary tale for us to keep in mind about not just the net net benefits of these things, but on the concentration of costs that may have outside broader effects on people. Yeah, that's such a good point. So day to day, how has this work impacted you? Does it change the way that you behave when you go into a Starbucks or go grocery shopping? Uh I really appreciate this question. Um, yes, I would say it does, and I'm a little embarrassed to admit it because it suggests that I didn't always behave the way I do now <laughs> when I went into a Starbucks or a grocery store. But 
uh, right now, you know, first of all, I go into a grocery store with the, I try to put on my ethnographer hat and really try to understand what's going on. And it's difficult not to have a conversation with somebody about whether there are any robots in the store and how you feel about it. But I do try not to burden people as well. And, and I also just think that, you know, I'm aware of just how difficult these jobs are. And so I try to, you know, do my small part and try to get my kids to do their small part to just, you know, express the gratitude for these folks who are working difficult jobs and to try to make their life easier by being a customer in the store, not harder. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, Dan Schneider. This is great conversation and we appreciate your work very much also. Thanks, Jill. I really appreciate the chance to talk and thanks for these really thoughtful questions and, and exchange. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Dan Schneider, professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Dan has been studying workforce trends since long before the pandemic, and the data he has collected over the past two years will be critical to our understanding of where we are and where we go from here. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.